From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of Burbank is living a somewhat quieter life these days. Just months ago, he was prosecuting the impeachment trial of President Trump in the Senate. We'll talk with the congressman about how COVID-19's affected work on Capitol Hill, as well as the 2020 presidential race. And it seems every day we learn a little more about the coronavirus. Our daily COVID-19 update gives us a chance to catch up on the latest. We'll be joined by UCLA Geffen School of Medicine professor, Dr. David Eisenman. It's Air Talk right after NPR News here on KPCC. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Hope you had a wonderful Memorial Day weekend, an opportunity to pay tribute to those who lost their lives in service to the country, as well as to enjoy some recreation, hopefully safely. If you got out to do some hiking or out to the beach to exercise or even going for a drive somewhere not too far away. A little bit later, we're going to open up the phones for you to share what you saw about uh, what Southern California was like from the mountains through the deserts to the ocean, for you to share what you observed. We're also going to talk about the new protocols that have been released by the state of California for the reopening of houses of worship with limits on the size of those congregations, number of people that can come back to the synagogue, to the church, to the mosque, uh, and we'll hear from faith leaders about their thoughts on bringing congregants back into houses of worship as soon as this weekend. But we begin with our daily update on COVID-19. Joining us once more from UCLA, a professor of medicine and public health, Dr. David Eisenman, who directs UCLA Center for Public Health and Disasters. He's also associate natural scientist at the Rand Corporation. Dr. Eisenman, welcome back. I hope you had a very nice weekend. Did you get an extra day? I did, and it was lovely. It was great to be outdoors. Thank you for asking. So we're glad to to hear that. Hopefully we're all a little bit uh, more refreshed. Uh, I wanted to start, first of all, with that NPR story that we just heard about what they said is the 10th of the clinical trials of a vaccine to go to the human safety testing, this one in Australia. Your thoughts about the number that we now have at this point? Yeah, well, it's really good news. We are seeing, you know, we have a, over 100 vaccines that have been, uh, that are being developed across the world. We are having, um, the, out of those over 100, uh, over a dozen now, I think, are now in clinical trials, or about a dozen are in clinical trials. They'll start with the first phase, which is to look at safety. Last week, we saw that one of them uh, that was done by Mode RNA, also called Moderna, uh, was safe in uh, a cohort of 30 patients who were given it. Um, once they go from phase one to safety, they're then given to patients to, or volunteers to see if they have any increase in immunity um, as measured by increases in antibodies. So this is all very good. Um, you know, I think that there is some optimism that 
a vaccine uh, may be available by early 2021. There's still a long way between even developing a vaccine that's effective and, of course, producing enough for everybody to get them. But uh, so far, things are on the right track. And the scientific, the scope of the endeavor is extraordinary. We've never had this number of clinical vaccines uh, trials going at one time, have we? No, it's really amazing. Uh, as we talked about before, this is kind of like a Manhattan project for vaccines. And it's really a global Manhattan project, as I said, because so many countries are, are working on this. The uh, scientific community has been really great in sharing data among labs so that they can move forward faster on vaccine development and the science. And at the same time, um, you know, we're, the companies are starting to think about these back end of this, which is how to ramp up production if they have a successful one. Uh, it's, it's an amazing effort all around. Wanted to ask you about another, a very small scale study of pregnant women. And I just want to caution if you're pregnant and you're listening, um, this, this, um, I don't want you to get upset or be worried about what we're going to talk about. It's 12 women and the babies uh, all came out healthy and to size as we understand. However, it did appear that for mothers who had COVID-19, that there was an effect on the placenta. And Dr. Eisenman, I wonder if you can speak to that. There is a lot of redundancy in the placenta, isn't there? Yes, right. So, I mean, I think you started off with the right introduction to this, which is that all the babies were born healthy and normal and beautiful, had APGAR scores, if anyone knows what that is, uh, nine out of 10, which is really excellent. Um, So this was a very small study. It was, I think, 16 women who had COVID-19 and their placentas after they were born were compared to 19 women who did not, uh, 16 women who did not have COVID-19. And they found evidence in the anatomy of the placenta that there was low blood flow in certain sections, including some clots. Um, as I said, all while they found these changes in the placenta, the babies were all very healthy. And this is because the placenta has a tremendous amount of redundancy, as you said. Um, while its job is to, you know, its job is important. It, it delivers oxygen and nutrients to uh, from the mother to the child. And so it's really an incredibly well-developed organ. It has a lot of redundancy that way. And we saw that with these babies being um, very healthy. And in fact, almost all, all studies that uh, are in, you know, systematic studies of um, pregnant women have really found no effect on the birth of, on, on the child itself um, from COVID-19. So at this point, what should pregnant women do? Uh, they should, you know, they can talk about the results with their doctor. Um, this probably will not change practice very much. It's a very small study, and uh, it really is about raising the issue to look for it more, but not to change practice yet, probably. And, and what do you think could be learned from this? Is is there something, and perhaps not just ap- applicable to the virus's effect during pregnancy, but beyond that to understanding how it works in the in the body? Yes, there is this common thread that's, that's appearing among COVID-19 cases, which is 
a um, tendency towards clots and to effects on um, blood flow. We see that in, in sick adults. And that is part of the syndrome that we've, this rare syndrome that children get of this inflammatory illness after COVID-19. So it's on par with that effect on the vasculature, the, the arterials, and uh, the effect on clots. Um, so in that sense, it's consistent. And Dr. Eisenman, um, is this something that we have seen with other coronaviruses or other infectious diseases where you do have this higher risk of blood clots? It appears the vascular system is affected by it. Well, I'm not an expert in infectious diseases uh, of all the sorts, but my understanding is that this has not been seen in other coronaviruses. So, you know, the other coronaviruses, uh, three of them cause the common cold. And of course, we don't have any problem with blood clots when we get the common cold from a coronavirus. Uh, one of the other ones is SARS. I don't believe SARS caused this. I'm not sure about the last one called MERS. Uh, it's it's Mideastern uh, Respiratory Syndrome, and uh, it's a really pretty rare syndrome that I've never had any connection to. We're talking with UCLA's Dr. David Eisenman, public health authority, professor of medicine at UCLA, and he directs the university's Center for Public Health and Disasters. I welcome your calls with your questions about the latest on COVID-19. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We are generally seeing a decrease in the number of hospitalizations and cases of COVID-19. So sort of the national takeaway is generally positive. Brazil, of course, is uh, being inundated with the coronavirus. But um, if this continues, Dr. Eisenman, what then would be your next concern? When would we see a possible rebound of COVID-19? Well, we have right now... uh, Places where COVID-19 is decreasing, such as New York and New Jersey, we have places like California where it's decreasing. And even in Los Angeles, we've seen now a decrease in the three-day average of hospitalized cases. That was just reported, down by 15%. And also a a decrease in the average number of deaths over a week, down by 3%. Um, So that's all good news. We, on the other hand, are seeing states where it's increasing number of cases, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina. So we are, uh, and not surprisingly, a lot of the states are are states where they opened up earlier or didn't uh, close down in the same way. So with less social distancing, they're getting more cases. I think we're going to see this kind of um, uh, ebb and flow in different hotspots. It's not going to go away completely this summer. There'll be places where it increases. Certainly, um, uh, that's going to be the case. It's not going to be completely gone. We are concerned that come October, when uh, uh, cold and flu season, the regular cold and flu season hits, uh, we will then have um, the double whammy of cold and flu season plus COVID-19. Part of the concern is that the virus might have this seasonal component where it comes back in the cold, uh, the colder seasons, um, like October, November, December, January, and it affects us, which might be 
part of the reason that we're seeing more of the virus down in Brazil, too, because, of course, it's their winter down there. Yeah. And and if it does come back in the fall, when the weather closes, uh, uh, gets colder, uh, do you anticipate that it could be somewhat different? Is is there a chance that it could mutate over the course of the intervening months? Well, I think we're less concerned about mutation. We're more concerned about being prepared for this. This is the time where if we have, you know, certainly in, in places like California, where we have decreasing cases, where we really need to be ramping up our capacity to deal with uh, a really big return in October. So now is the time that we need to be doing that. Just like you know, January and February, we should have been preparing as a nation for the onslaught in March. This summer is the time when we need to be preparing for the onslaught in October. We need to be getting our testing capacity up. We need to be getting our contact tracing capacity up. Um, we, of course, um, need to maintain our hospital capacity and just get ready f- for this surge uh, in October, which could be really bad. We're talking with UCLA's Dr. David Eisenman. We're at 866-893-KPECC. You can also ask a question via Twitter, tweet at AirTalk. You can post on the AirTalk Facebook page or you can post on the AirTalk page on our website at kpecc.org. You're listening to AirTalk on 89.3 KPECC on the KPECC app, or when you're at home, use your smart speaker. Just tell it to play KPECC if you're out in the car and going to be at home shortly. Dr. Eisenman, uh, also wonder about uh, people being out in the world over the course of the three-day weekend. Uh, We had Eaton Canyon, the trail that went up to the falls there uh, had to be closed as well as the nature center because there were so many people that came out uh, to hike and to spend time that there was no way to distance. Many of the people didn't bring any face coverings whatsoever, despite um, the requirement that people cover their faces and and give six feet distance between them. Uh, What do you think are the odds that these kinds of events like this will spur an increase in the spread? Well, it's hard to say about isolated cases like Eaton Canyon. Um, You know, my experience of the weekend was very different. I went um, hiking and uh, there were people, most people on the trail were wearing masks. Um, When we got up to the top, people were socially distanced and wearing their masks. Um, At the beach here in in Venice, uh, in Marine del Rey, where I live, uh, people were, by and large, uh, in small groups and, and by and large, walking to the beach in mass. I think, uh, you know, I, we didn't get the kinds of um, situations like we saw in the media, um, for instance, Lake of the Ozarks, where uh, right now um, people who, are, who, who went to the parties there are now being told by um, local health authorities to quarantine you know, I don't think we had those kinds of experiences. That video was, looked like spring break, Dr. Eisman. That was unbelievable, the partying going on there. Yeah, it, it was unbelievable. And that's that's the kind of context where you can get real spread. And that's why the local health authorities recommend anybody who's gone, who went to that party, to be quarantining. Uh, th- those, are the, those big events where there's a lot of people and you're very close to them and uh, – you know, all it takes is a couple people who are infectious to really spread it all around. That's what we need to be concerned about. 
Uh, Dr. David Eisenman joining us on AirTalk. Uh, I was uh, in Long Beach on Sunday, and as you described, Venice and Marina del Rey was very similar there. There were people passively using the beach out on a towel or, you know, just sunning themselves, but they were all separate group to group. In fact, way more than six feet between them. So it looked to my eye, quite safe what people were doing, even though it wasn't strictly by the book active. But uh, but good to see that people were clearly taking the directive to keep their distance and to uh, wear a face covering very seriously. Again, uh, your questions for Dr. David Eisenman were at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Dr. Eisenman, I want to ask you about uh, churches uh, and synagogues and mosques being able to hold in-person services, starting with this weekend's services, no more than 100 or 25% of listed capacity, whichever is the smaller number. Your thoughts about the safety of gathering in that size of a crowd? Well, there is risk, and this is why the new uh, recommendations from the state suggest, first of all, that you hold uh, services virtually if possible, because there is always risk in these kinds of gatherings. Um, Some of the biggest outbreaks have occurred in church settings where people are closely packed for a couple of hours at a time. There's, of course, singing, which we know um, exhales a lot more virus than just talking quietly. Um, so it is a concern. Uh, luckily, these guide—I mean, these guidances do provide ways of opening up and some ways of mitigating the risk. Uh, uh, like you said, lowering the number of people to 25% of the of the capacity, uh, reducing sharing of um, books and and rugs and meals, reducing. Um, flow through high traffic areas like chapels. Um, and all this, you know, if followed, can mitigate the risk. But it's definitely, and it's going to be all reviewed uh, uh, after a few weeks to see if this is causing any harm. Um, but I think to the extent possible, I, for one, um, who I enjoy going to services occasionally, would um, still rather do it virtually. All right. And, and of course, uh, the risk that comes from group singing, a huge issue because for so many people, that's really central to the worship experience is group singing. We're talking with Dr. David Eisenman, UCLA professor of medicine and public health. He directs UCLA Center for Public Health and Disasters. We'll continue with more conversation on what we're learning about COVID-19 back in one minute. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle, Dr. David Eisenman of UCLA joining us. One thing that's happening are that stores are opening up so that people can make their purchases. 
so many of the smaller retailers that it wasn't fair that the big box stores like Costco, Walmart, Target, that they were able to operate under uh, conditions to try and keep people safer, but that the small ones weren't. They're going to get their opportunity. Now, I, as I recall, Dr. Eisman, you're like me. You, you've you sort of been locked down about even going to the grocery store, as I recall. I think your wife does the shopping, right? Have, have you ventured out into the store yet? <laughs> we uh, we do the shopping, but we do it very – we do it individually. And uh, we go as much as possible during off hours um, when there's a long – um, line, of course, I wait till another time to come and stand on line. Um, we have uh, practiced from the very beginning wearing a mask, washing our hands before we go in, washing our hands after we come out. Um, I've been very heartened by how I see the, the grocery stores uh, performing right now um, by limiting the number of people who are coming in, by um, washing down the carts before you get to use them and giving resources to that. So, um, and people seem to be moving pretty quickly through the store. At least the ones I go to, um, people don't linger. They come and get their, their shopping done and leave. All right. Uh, good news. Uh, let me share Ralph's uh, comment or question. We hear much about possible timelines for a vaccine, but not other crucial aspects of the nature of this virus that are essential for knowing best how to live with it. What's a reasonable timeline for learning definitively whether or not contracting the virus will provide immunity going forward to those who contract it, or for whether or not the virus will become an endemic, much as herpes has? These are really great questions. Um, both of those questions take time. So to know if people are going to be immune in a, in a meaningful way means what we have to do is follow the people who in who have been infected already and developed antibodies and then watch them through the next sort of wave of infections, which we think might come in October and see if they are uh, less likely uh, to get uh, the infection compared to people who don't have the antibody. So that just naturally takes time and then also a lot of people so that you have the enough numbers to really detect the difference. Whether it becomes endemic uh, is as much – it really – we wait to see. It's probably unlikely that we'll ever get rid of this virus completely without a vaccine that gets into everybody. And we're talking about getting into everybody you know, around the world. And that's a tall order in this political s- system where we aren't seeing global co- cooperation, where we're seeing uh, – partisanship around vaccine acceptance. And uh, it has me worried if people aren't willing to take the vaccine, there will still be people who will get the virus. Norma says, I'm very disturbed by the reports of people dying at home from strokes and heart attacks, even refusing kidney transplants out of fear of being in a hospital and catching COVID-19. Have the public messages backfired? That's Norma's question. It's been a real concern to all of us in medicine. We've seen a lot less patients, and we know that's not a good thing, um, which is why we're trying to really r- rapidly open up our hospitals and open up our clinics now and, and be very proactive in reaching out to our patients and calling them and, and asking them how they're doing. The uh, 
there's no doubt that there are people who died because they were afraid of going to the hospital. And the, the next step is to really make uh, it very clear to people that they should come to our clinics, that they should come to our emergency rooms and come to our hospitals, that they can be safe. You know, our emergency rooms now have separate areas for COVID-19. Our hospitals have separate areas for COVID-19. Um, we are testing people in the hospital to see if they have COVID-19 and uh, have the coronavirus and don't know it. And if that's the case, we, um, we do all kinds of precautions so they don't infect others. And it's really important if people feel sick at all that they contact their doctor because we can take care of them in a, in a way that protects them at the same time from the virus. Dr. Eisenman, it's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir, for being with us. We wish you and your family continued good health. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Dr. David Eisenman is the director of UCLA Center for Public Health and Disasters. He's also professor of medicine and public health at UCLA, the Geffen School of Medicine, and associate natural scientist at the Rand Corporation as well. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC, the KPECC app, and your preferred smart speaker by telling it to play KPECC. Such a pleasure to have you with us on this Tuesday on Air Talk following the three-day Memorial Day weekend. I'm Larry Mantle. So glad you're joining us on Air Talk with you all this week from 10 to noon. You can listen whenever it's convenient for you. Wherever you get your favorite podcasts, that's where you'll find Air Talk as well as at kpecc.org. Joining me now is the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, whose district includes Burbank, parts of Pasadena, Glendale, and Los Angeles. Congressman Schiff, welcome back. Thank you. It's great to be with you, Larry. Uh, let's start, first of all, with the $3 trillion HEROES Act, which was passed by the House of Representatives, and uh, rather rather narrowly, um, but the Senate is not going to be taking it up. There's big issue of dispute over the amount of money going to uh, states and to local jurisdictions to help them through the financial crisis of COVID-19. Um, what sorts of prospects are there for some sort of a compromise, um, a sort of uh, you know, son of the CARES Act, so to speak? Well, I think it's going to take some time. You know, we are taking up this week uh, small compromises on, for example, adding flexibility to the small business program where we will allow uh, small businesses uh, 24 weeks instead of eight weeks to be able to utilize the funds and still have them forgiven. Uh, we remove the requirement that only 25% uh, of the small business funds can be used for uh, rent or utilities or other fixed costs. Uh, so we're, we're taking some small steps, but in terms of the larger uh, picture of the HEROES Act, uh, we've reached, uh, you know, some divergence between the parties. Uh, one party that, you know, is willing to let states go bankrupt. Um, you know, Mitch McConnell uh, openly opining that maybe that's the answer. Uh, you know, that is not the answer. Uh, laying off uh, state employees, local employees, police, firefighters, teachers, nurses, I, I think would add disaster on top of disaster. 
But we are at a point of divergence. You know, the president is out campaigning against absentee balloting, for example, uh, whereas the states need funding to make it safe for people to vote during a pandemic. Uh, on many of these issues and others, there is a, a broad difference of opinion, uh, and we're going to have to try to uh, come to mutual agreement to get things done. But uh, I'm not sure how much interest there is, uh, frankly, uh, on Mitch McConnell's part, uh, other than uh, confirming judges. Uh, we'll take uh, listener questions for Congressman Schiff. I'll pass them on to him. If you have any for him, we're at 866-893-KPECC. You can ask them on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Tweet a question, at AirTalk, or post it on the AirTalk Facebook page. Uh, the Republican perspective on the HEROES Act that they've uh, they've expressed is when you've got so many democratically uh, dominant states that have uh, given such huge pension benefits to public employees, because that's the the political base of financial support for Democrats in states, that then it's not right for taxpayers elsewhere to bail out states like California, they would argue, that have given such rich public employee pensions that have put them uh, at the precipice, uh, precipice of financial problems. Well, you know, those same states uh, that uh, McConnell and other leaders are attacking are donors right now to the federal government. Uh, they're giving more to the federal government than they're getting back. Uh, many of the other states uh, are recipient states uh, that are complaining right now about helping these donor states uh, look, if, if they want to reallocate the tax burden so that, that California doesn't have to give as much to the federal government and it can give more to its pension funds, that's fine. But they seem to think they, there's plenty of resources for bailing out large companies. Uh, they had no problem with the $2.2 trillion tax cut for large companies to do stock buybacks, executive compensation and whatnot. They're willing to put $500 billion into a large industry fund to, to help uh, uh, save uh, different uh, industries, but they're willing to let states go bankrupt. And, and that makes no sense to me, except that, um, you know, they, they feel that, uh, hey, look, if it doesn't affect the red states, they're not particularly interested. When, you know, a hurricane hit Louisiana, I didn't ask whether Katrina was hitting a red state or a blue state uh, when, uh, you know, there needed to be relief from other natural disasters didn't matter to me which states were impacted. These are all Americans that were hurting. Uh, and there are Americans around the country that are hurting right now who need help uh, and laying off vast numbers of uh, state and local employees uh, is not the answer. We're talking with Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, who represents Burbank, Glendale, portions of Pasadena and Los Angeles. Again, if you have questions for him, we're at 866-893-KPECC. Isn't much of the equation of who's a, a donor state versus a recipient, net recipient state, have to do with Social Security and the age demographics, like you know Florida, where you've got a lot of retirees, comparatively smaller number of young workers, California, which is a comparatively demographically young state. Isn't that one of the biggest reasons that you see that difference? You know, I think that that certainly may be one of the contributing factors. I think it's also a part of the strength of our economy uh, that we generate uh, the resources that we do and that we pay in uh, a percentage of those resources to federal coffers through our federal taxation. Uh, that makes us one of the biggest contributors to the federal pot. And so, you know, many of these other states are receiving 
uh, largesse as a result of the work of people in California. Uh, and, uh, and so when, when California is hurting, uh, when we're uh, battling this disease like other states and we need national help, uh, then, uh, you know, these other states, I think, uh, and national leaders should remember that uh, these are fellow Americans that are suffering, fellow Americans that uh, are losing their jobs, uh, and uh, they're dependent on these fellow Americans uh, to help prop up their own states uh, in good times and in bad. Well, and I, the point, only point I was trying to make is that um, those that are paying in uh, on the net contributors side, they'll be getting Social Security, we hope, down the road, uh, which will be their payout based on what they're paying now. That was just uh, the point yeah. that I was making. Um, yeah, I, I did. That's certainly, that's certainly uh, I wanted to ask you about the Coronavirus Commission um, that you've proposed to take up the federal response uh, to COVID-19 and its appearance, um, the rapid rate at which it spread in the United States, the shortage of testing supplies, um, reagent materials for the tests, uh, the uh, ventilators, all, all of these concerns early on. What is the timeline for looking back at this to try and figure out what could have been done better? Um, the bill that I introduced would go into effect early next year, uh, so it wouldn't be before the election uh, so as to avoid it becoming uh, a political football of any kind. Uh, you know, the most important thing that will come out of the commission's work are recommendations based on analysis of what went wrong how to protect the country going forward. Now, if you look at the 9-11 Commission itself, and we based our legislation on the work of that commission, uh, it took time to stand up that commission. It took uh, a year to year and a half for the commission to do its work. Once it had done its work, it, it needed to continue its existence to help effectuate its recommendations. So it's a long-term project, but you know, frankly, the severity of this, uh, as we approach the you know, 100,000 American casualties really, uh, I think, um, spells out the need for a really comprehensive analysis of why, as you say, we didn't have the protective gear, we didn't have the ventilators, we had states competing with each other, outbidding each other, uh, why uh, we didn't respond more quickly, why containment wasn't possible. I mean, all of these problems, uh, how we res responded economically to this crisis, uh, need to be analyzed so the country is better protected against this threat in the future. Uh, there were Republican pro proposals, which are very similar to mine. Uh, so there was bipartisan support for the idea. Uh, I'm sure there will be hostility by the administration that is concerned that it will uh, come under heavy criticism for its mishandling of this, and that may be true, but that, uh, that doesn't obviate the need for it. And I think what will drive this legislation, Larry, is the same thing that drove the legislation of the 9-11 Commission over the objections of the Bush administration, and that is the demand by victims that there be an honest accounting of what went wrong and how to prevent this from happening again. We're talking with Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff, Burbank, Glendale, Los Angeles, and surrounding communities. We'll continue our conversation with him. We have much more to talk about, including an issue he raised earlier, vote by mail, which is being adopted by many states. 
uh, because with COVID-19 and the uncertainty around the November general election, um, governors and legislators say they need to look at allowing people to vote more easily from home. We'll talk about the concerns that Republicans raise about doing that back in one minute on Air Talk. Wonderful to have you with us on the KPCC app and 89.3 KPCC. When you're home, just tell your smart speaker to play KPCC. We'll be right there with you. Whatever room of the house you're in, wherever you are, if you're going into the office, and of course in your car, or wherever you have your phone with the app, you're able to listen to KPCC. I uh, want to ask you about vote by mails. I indicated many states are making it uh, uniform that everybody is mailed a ballot. Uh, here in California, that is the directive. So everyone gets a vote by mail ballot. They can still, in Los Angeles, presumably, um, health measures allowing drop it off at a vote center or choose to vote in person if they want. But Republicans have said one of their big concerns is over so-called vote harvesting. Uh, This actually occurred back in 2018 when a Republican political consultant in North Carolina gathered a bunch of absentee ballots, turning them in, and um, that in violation of the law in that state, which does not allow for so-called vote harvesting, or in other words, an individual unrelated uh, to other people taking a whole group of ballots and and turning them in on behalf of other individuals. Uh, I hear a lot from Democrats, Congressman Schiff, that, well, we have no examples of this, therefore we shouldn't be worried about it. But we have all kinds of things that we look at that we have worries about in advance of what could go wrong, what potential abuses there could be. Why do Democrats just downplay the potential for fraud with universal vote by mail, particularly with what's called vote harvesting. Well, Larry, I think you're right. The only um, large uh, example um, of this kind of uh, attack on absentee balloting was done by Republicans in North Carolina. Um, But the reason why, uh, you know, I think Democrats bridle rightly at a president who is delegitimizing everyone who votes by mail is that this is the president's way to disenfranchise people from voting in November. Uh, And he made it very obvious in a way that he sometimes does when he says the secret thing out loud, when he said three weeks ago that if we made it easier for people to vote by mail or through other means uh, and more people voted, basically Republicans couldn't get elected. Now, I don't know whether that's true, but if it is true, it's a good reason for them to change their divisive platform. It's not a good reason to disenfranchise people or prevent people or making it hard for people to vote by absentee. Uh, Donald Trump isn't saying, oh, let's put some greater protections in place. He's saying, let's just not do it except for me, Donald Trump, um, because I don't want to go to Florida to vote uh, where I'm now registered. But if yeah. we if we see that the the president's comments are just naked political gain, that that's not a legitimate reason to say, well, we're not going to have vote by mail because it it hurts Republicans. Is there not still a legitimate argument separate from that 
that um, there does need to be more attention paid to the ability of people to pressure groups of individuals uh, to vote a certain way, to sign those ballots and, and turn them in. Um, it, it, do you not have any concern about that? You know, Larry, my bare concern, honestly, uh, at the moment is that the president of the United States will force people in November to choose their health or their vote. Uh, and my other concern, based on what he is saying, is that he is going to cast into doubt the legitimacy of millions of people who vote by mail if he loses the election. Uh, that is my paramount concern right now. And yes, can we always improve protections against any kind of voter mischief? Absolutely. But you know, Larry, the biggest problem we have in voter fraud is not people voting by absentee. It's not people voting in person. It's people who are paid a buck a signature to gather uh, voter registrations who make up registrations that don't actually result in people voting, but because they get paid for those cards when they turn them in, they make up a bunch of phony cards. That's actually what we see with some frequency. So if we want to talk about problems we see with frequency, that's the one we should be attacking. But, but really, you know, the president does this over and over, and I think people sort of fall into the trap. Uh, he makes statements that are completely unsupported, uh, that are completely false and baseless. And we, you know, bend all over ourselves to say, oh, isn't there some kernel of truth, some grain of truth that we can find in this to justify or rationalize um, when the much bigger threat staring us in the face is they're making an effort to force people to choose their health or their vote this fall. And it's unconscionable. Uh, and they're taking steps right now to delegitimize the result of the election, which in a democracy is also unconscionable. Uh, and to me, those are the far greater fears I have than that the Republicans will do what they did again in North Carolina. Albeit, that is a concern. But it well, is and, not one that overrides the legitimacy of the process of voting by mail. It it also um, is likely going to delay the results. If this is a close election, uh, delay it considerably because you're going to have so many ballots turned in on Election Day um, that are that are gathered on mass uh, that to uh, determine all the signatures are valid, whatnot, could be weeks bef before we have the result. But let's move on and, and talk about um, the other issue in, in which uh, you've certainly been in the news lately, and that is the, um, up until today, Interim Director of National Intelligence, Richard Grinnell, revealed uh, who requested the unmasking of National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's name in intelligence report on Russia's efforts to affect the 2016 election. The names included multiple Obama administration officials, including Vice President Joe Biden. Why would individuals, and I understand it's, it, this is pretty routine, and there are thousands of uh, complied with uh, approved unmasking requests annually uh, among federal officials, but what would the reasons be that individuals like the vice president would want the name unmasked? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, what people need to realize, because uh, the, um, the Trump administration and its allies like Grinnell uh, have been talking sort of fast and loose about what results they have just uh, selectively uh, declassified. Uh, it's not that these officials were saying, show me whatever conversations you have with Mike Flynn and unmask Mike Flynn's name. 
Uh, no, the process is you would get a report, an intelligence report, that would show a U.S. person's name um, redacted, and it would say U.S. person instead of their name to protect their privacy. And you get this report, and you don't know who the masked person is. Um, and But you also can't understand the significance of what you're reading without knowing who it is. And so there's a process where you can request the unmasking of the name. So when officials requested that certain reports be unmasked, they may have no they may have had no idea who that U.S. person was and only found out when it was unmasked. So the impression that the, the administration, the president, and others have given that they sought to unmask Michael Flynn is in itself misleading. Uh, they sought to understand intelligence reports, and when they asked who is this person uh, referred to as U.S. person one, then they were informed of that identity. What you didn't see were all the other unmasking reports that had nothing to do with Michael Flynn because Rick Grinnell didn't want to share that information with the public because he wanted to give the public a misleading impression of something the president calls Obamagate. Uh, and this is, I think, really um, quite transparent. These are unmasking requests that took place years ago. So why is Rick Grinnell, uh, whose only qualification really uh, is that of being a partisan Trump loyalist, why is he selectively declassifying information now in the run-up to an election? And the answer is because it's the run-up to an election. Uh, and, well, you know, to me, that's the that's the uh, greater uh, risk to the intelligence process, the way Grinnell has been politicizing it. We'll continue with Adam Schiff, Democratic Congressman, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee. His district includes Burbank, Glendale, portions of Los Angeles and Pasadena. We'll be back in just one minute on Air Talk. Coming up in our second hour of Air Talk, we'll talk with you about what you saw over the course of the Memorial Day weekend while out and about in the world as people were enjoying themselves in the warm days. Were they also being careful about keeping distance, covering their faces, doing the things we need to do to try and help prevent the spread of COVID-19. We'll talk about that next hour. And also our political analysts will be with us to talk about the biggest political news of the past week. With us right now, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of Burbank. He's the chair of the House Intelligence Committee and was the lead prosecutor of President Trump during the Senate impeachment trial of the president. Uh, Congressman, in a transcripts of confidential testimony presented to your committee, um, no one provides any proof of Trump campaign officials working with Russian operatives to harm the Clinton campaign. Yet your critics have pointed out how you were regularly going on news programs at that same time that testimony was being taken, saying there was more than circumstantial evidence, there was collusion in plain sight, um, calling it beyond Watergate. Why the disconnect between the testimony that you were being given at the time and what you were publicly saying at the time? There is no disconnect, uh, but I disagree strongly with the predicate of your question that there was no evidence in the transcripts. That's what the president is saying, but that's not a reflection of what's actually in the transcripts. When you read the transcripts, much like the Mueller report, what you see is you see, in fact, the Russians reaching out to the Trump campaign, in fact, putting it in writing, offering dirt on the Clinton campaign, which they describe as part of the Russian government's uh, effort to help Mr. Trump. 
And you see the Trump campaign accept. You see the president's own son saying, if it's what you say it is, then we would love it. And the best time is late summer. You see the president's campaign setting up a secret meeting with the Russians in Trump Tower in New York uh, with uh, the president's son and son-in-law and the campaign chairman. Uh, you see them lying about that meeting, saying it never took place. You see them lying about the meeting when it was discovered and what was said in the meeting. Uh, you see the Russians informing the Trump campaign that they, through George Papadopoulos, that they have thousands of stolen Clinton emails and they can help by anonymously releasing them. You see Roger Stone in communication with WikiLeaks trying to get uh, advanced information about the release of the Russian stolen materials in the Clinton campaign. All of that is in the transcript. All of that is evidence of collusion. So your predicate is wrong, but it's, it's the Trump line. Uh, but uh, we have to keep pointing out, as we did when the Mueller report came out, it's just not consistent. That Trump line is just not consistent with what is actually in the transcripts. The evidence so that you... I mentioned, the, the Trump campaign sharing polling data, uh, Paul Manafort, the campaign chairman sharing polling data, internal polling data, with someone linked to Russian intelligence. Of course, that's evidence of collusion. It would be admissible in any court in the land. So, um, you know, we have to keep on going back to these facts to counter the so, misinformation, but it's there in the transcripts. So you, you so you think it was wrong then um, that uh, the special a prosecutor did not prosecute over uh, those contacts between the Trump campaign and Russians? Well, what I said before the Mueller report uh, even came out, Larry, and I said this repeatedly on Sunday shows and elsewhere, there's a difference between evidence of collusion uh, and whether you can prove the crime of conspiracy beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and that I would defer to Mueller on the latter, but just what was in plain sight in that Trump Tower meeting in New York, in the provision of polling data to people linked to Russian intelligence, uh, in all of these uh, uh, connections between the Trump campaign and the Russians and the presence touting the WikiLeaks disclosure every time they were made more than 100 times in the campaign trail. Mueller's own conclusion that the Trump campaign invited and welcomed Russian interference and made full use of it, built a campaign messaging strategy around that. All of that is, of course, evidence of collusion. Uh, Mueller reached the conclusion that he couldn't prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that each element of the crime of conspiracy was met. That's a different standard. Uh, and we don't hold presidential campaigns, at least we shouldn't, to the standard merely of what you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury in terms of a violation of the criminal law. What the Trump campaign did was, I think, most Americans' understanding of what collusion is. It's unethical. It's more immoral. It may be criminal. And the reason ultimately Mueller concluded he couldn't prosecute the conspiracy was that he couldn't show that Don Jr. and Manafort and Kushner knew what they were doing and agreeing to accept dirt from the Russians was illegal, even though it was illegal. Now, I, you know, I can quarrel with that. Uh, Paul Manafort had run presidential campaigns. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Um, but uh, that was Mueller's conclusion. And, uh, and I accept it. Yeah, but uh, but all those Obama administration officials who testified before your committee said they had no evidence of an active effort on the part of the campaign and Russian operatives to try and affect the election. Not exactly, no. Uh, what they said was that they were not in a position, because they were not involved in the investigation, to know what the full evidence was. But what they were seeing was deeply concerning to them. 
Um, that's really what their testimony said. All right. Congressman, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir, for being with us. Thank you for joining us and stay well. Thank you, you Democratic. Too. Thank you, Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of Burbank joining us on Air Talk. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Again, I hope you had a wonderful weekend. So glad to have you starting your Tuesday with us here on KPCC. Coming up at noon, Governor Gavin Newsom uh, has a news conference for us. We'll be bringing it to you live right here after Air Talk this morning on KPCC. Speaking of Governor Newsom, yesterday he released a series of protocols for houses of worship to reopen. It called for them to have limited capacity. 25% of their listed capacity for the building or a maximum of 100 people, whichever is the smaller figure, would come into play. Also, um, singing, which is such a big part of, of so many different congregations, also something that shouldn't be done because of the risk of the virus being spread that way. People need to keep their distance, need to keep their faces covered as well while worshiping. Also, the news that stores in California are reopening, essentially on a county-by-county basis. And as restaurants start to reopen, again, the concern about how to be able to keep distance on the inside of a restaurant or on a patio and uh, keep the employees safe as well as the customers and to engender that, that feeling of safety at the same time that people are trying to get back closer to what life was like before the pandemic. With us to talk about about the new directives, Cal Matters reporter Ben Christopher, who's been writing about the new guidelines. Ben, good to have you with us this morning. Ben, are you there? Okay, we'll try and uh, get Ben back on. I'm having a tough time uh, getting connected with him. In the meantime, I'd like to hear from you what you experienced out in the world over the weekend. Did you go hiking? Did you go to the beach? Did you go for a drive somewhere out to the desert? Although it's pretty hot, I know. Where did you go? What did you see as more and more people getting cabin fever are going out each and every weekend to enjoy Southern California, particularly when it's hot? 866-893-KPECC. 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. And as we did last week, now that we have actual protocols in place for houses of worship to reopen, this after the Justice Department sent a letter saying that uh, the protocols uh, for reopening um, unfairly burdened houses of worship. Uh, I'd like to hear if you're opening your church, synagogue, or mosque, 866-893-KPECC. If you're a faith leader who is not planning to reopen this weekend, what are the reasons why? 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. It's a good chance for you to let us know, being our eyes and ears, what you saw when you were out in the world over the course of the weekend. Um, Mike writes on the page, um, 
I can easily see um, a neighborhood near this park hates inconsiderate people, assuming that the neighborhood is a personal parking lot. Um, Parking, of course, an an issue. Jason writes, I hiked Eaton Canyon on Sunday, arrived there just before 7.30 a.m., usually three entrances to the park. However, two of the gates were closed, forcing people to usually park in those neighborhoods. The parking lot wasn't open at all, forcing people to park in the single neighborhood around the only open entrance. I don't know what anyone would have expected except for people to park in droves in that neighborhood. The canyon had a lot of people walking in along the canyon bottom early in the morning. Most were wearing masks. We left the canyon bottom to hike up the Mount Wilson Toll Road. Uh, Didn't see anyone at all for a couple of hours. It was glorious. 866-893-KPCC or the Air Talk page, kpcc.org. Now we have CalMatters reporter Ben Christopher. So, Ben, let's talk about the guidelines on the house, uh, houses of worship. Um, have we had any federal response to yesterday's release of the guidelines? As far as I know, we have not had that uh, a response yet. Um, so these guidelines came out Monday. This was um, after Friday, where uh, President Trump um, announced uh, sort of an impromptu press conference that he was um, calling on all houses of worship to open up and that he planned to override governors who, who refused to let that happen. It's not clear he actually has the authority to do that, but clearly the um, Governor Newsom and governors across the country were, were uh, under pressure to act. And um, on Friday, uh, uh, the governor had his own press conference and he seemed visibly frustrated saying that he and his administration were already working on new guidelines uh, for religious organizations. And so yesterday we, we got to see them. And, and I guess the responses um, from faith leaders and from the federal government and from counties are, are still trickling in. Yeah, I was curious because of the 100-person maximum for some of the, you know, very large churches. That's that, you know, small part of their congregations, whether they might bristle at that. But I I haven't heard anything uh, from the federal government. Ben, what are the guidelines for reopening businesses? So the uh, guidelines for for opening businesses, I mean, uh, it's important to note that— all of these are still subject to uh, to county approval, but essentially the uh, concurrent with the the announcement about houses of worship, the governor also announced that um, that he was going to allow in store retail shopping. Um, so this does not apply to certain um, sort of high contact um, service uh, businesses, such as like barber shops or nail salons, but it does allow for in person shopping in places like. Um, uh, uh, you know, well, I guess Target and Walmart, but also smaller like mom and pop shops um, that, that sell items where you're not directly interacting with people. Who had complained that they were at a huge disadvantage to the big box stores, often selling the same items, um, but that people were allowed to to go in if they were masked and observing distance. We're talking with Cal Matters reporter Ben Christopher. We're at eight six six eight nine three KPECC. Let's talk with Lloyd in Westchester. You were up in the San Gabriel Mountains hiking. Where were you? Took the trail from Lake Avenue in Altadena up to uh, Echo Mountain and then up to Inspiration Point. And uh, I thought that the powers that be had been preparing to reopen 
but there was no signage at the trailhead indicating that masks were required and instructing people to keep their social distance. And about 90% of the people on the uh, main part of the trail up to Echo Mountain were wearing masks. Um, but the other 10% were sort of pretty unapologetic and uh, unrepentant and sometimes a, a little hostile when I commented on it. Uh, many had clearly taken a lot of uh, preparation in their gear for their hike, but and I'm sure they had masks with them and that you know if they're going to go to Starbucks afterwards, they would need their mask. Um, but they just weren't hiking with them. And um, it, it was sort of disturbing. And I, I think if we're going to be in this for the long haul, uh, if not at the state level, our local government needs to pass some ordinances, uh, maybe making it an infraction to not wear a mask in certain situations, and uh, like on a on a trail or yeah. So in the Echo Mountain Trail, there really isn't room to to get around people and give a six feet uh, six foot buffer there. Lloyd, um, does this make mean it's unlikely you're going to go back out hiking again? Um, until we're farther along with COVID-19, or do you, you think you will give it a shot? Well, well, well my, my strategy is to try to, to pace my uh, approach with these people and basically just sort of hold my breath <laughs> as I pass them. And, and, and uh, annoyingly, the ones without wearing, aren't wearing masks are the ones who are sort of most likely to say hello. And my, my gut response is I don't even yeah. But so you're still going to go out and hike. All right. Lloyd, I appreciate it very much. Janine in Venice, where did you go over the weekend? Hi, Larry. I drove up to Santa Barbara, and it was like they don't even know what a pandemic is. Uh, the beaches were flooded. Restaurants were spilling over. I, I can't understand it. Maybe Santa Barbara County has a different guideline than we do. It was lovely. I felt like maybe I was living in a false world, but it was wide open and business was booming the the piers you know the pier in santa barbara was just flooded with people and so you didn't see people with face coverings you didn't see people distancing at stern's wharf or any of the restaurants right like right before you know um in the restaurants i was i was walking by so i didn't really gaze in to see if people were wearing masks but um on the beaches uh, there were two or three bistros in um Carpinteria that have they said have only been closed for about a week. They've been open and booming. There was a surf shop that said they were only closed for about a week, and in the shops, people were wearing their masks. But out on the street, it, I didn't even see people wearing them around their necks. Mm, all right. So Janine, uh, is this going to make you more reluctant to to go to a tourist area like that, or do you feel like you, you you're just going to um, you know, comply yourself and take your chances. I, I'm a senior citizen, first of all, um, and I've done very, very well through this. I'm a very, very healthy person. Um, no, I, I'm not. It, I have to tell you, um, it made, I was just elated to be out. I'll bet. <laughs> it was a beautiful weekend. Um, I did keep my distance from people as I could, um, but no, it's not, no. I, Cabin I, fever. <laughs> 
All right, Janine, thanks so much. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Eleni uh, in Idlewild says a lot of people uh, come to Idlewild for weekend trips and people showed up in droves this weekend. While it was great to see business coming in, I was concerned that the number of people who weren't masking, made no attempts at social distancing, were all concerned up here about travelers coming in that may have the virus and not know it. And Idlewild, I know, also has a number of people who are, you know, in that older demographic who were more vulnerable, many of them employed working in the service industry in that beautiful mountain town of Idlewild. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Catherine in Redlands, where did you go over the weekend? I went up the South Fork Trail near Jenks Lake Road. Uh, that's just above Angeles Oaks uh, off of Highway 38 on the way to the Big Bear. Went up Friday morning early. And what was it like? Was it very busy? Uh, you know, there were people getting out early. Uh, they were in the parking lot, many backpackers um, getting ready to pack in. because you, But we were just going for the morning and we're doing a, a loop and coming back down by noon. It was, uh, some people had masks, some people didn't. Uh, everybody seemed aware of distancing. People moved off the trail at the times when you were going to pass somebody. Um, very respectful. The one thing that was really appalling was the horrible piles of trash around the bathrooms and in the trash cans in the parking lot. It was, it was appalling. I, I don't know why people don't take that stuff with them when they leave. Um, but once we got on the trail, there was no treasure. I mean, there was nothing Great. like that on the trail. Well, it, well, at least when you were up in the pristine area, it was nice. Jenks Lake takes me back to my youth YMCA camp up there at Jenks, Jenks Lake. Uh, Catherine, thank you so much. In Redlands, talking about Angeles Oaks above there and how beautiful it was. 866-893-KPCC. Wonderful. We're hearing from people who were out in the world, what they experienced, sharing with us what you saw. I'm also asking faith leaders... Uh, to share with us, if you're a, an imam, a pastor, uh, a rabbi, are you planning to hold your services this weekend now that you can do so, or do you find the restrictions um, so limiting that it really wouldn't be the same. You don't want to do that. Maybe doing it online has worked really well to this point, or you're just concerned that even with the restrictions, the health risks for your congregation would be too great. 866-893-KPCC. Stephen in Pasadena, I understand uh, you're a faith leader. Uh, What's your church? Yes, uh, I um, am an associate pastor at Pasadena City Church uh, here in Pasadena, um, and we are holding off for a little bit before we open um, for uh, in-house services. Would it be difficult for you to meet the the uh, capacity criteria of the new regulations or not? No, we actually um, have a pretty high capacity in a pretty small community. We're in the old theater on Colorado Boulevard in East Pasadena. Oh, yeah, I think I saw E.T. when it came out at the theater that's your church, yeah. (laughs) Many years ago. I know which theater you're talking about. Uh, So what's what's leading you to hold off, given that you've got a large space and a congregation that you could could distance safely in that space? 
Well, we have um, some community members of ours that are still concerned about the safety. Everyone wants to make sure that we're not rushing towards a plan. Um, I think that a lot of there's been just so many uh, rumors about what when we would reopen as far as like um, going off of the guidelines. And I think we were all kind of surprised to hear uh, something happen yesterday so quickly. Um, and so with that being said, we're still holding off. We've been doing online services for the past few months, and we've really gotten it down. <laughs> Great. Yeah. So why give it up if it's working? That's a good point. <laughs> exactly. And we also want to be able to serve our community because we know that a lot of our community members will choose to stay home for health concerns for a while. We have many people who are in the at-risk community. Um, so for that reason, we want to make sure that we can be able to serve the at-home community as well as the in-service, which is just going to take some time to be able to do both. And, you know, it's important to keep in mind, too, that we have had some serious outbreaks of COVID-19 related to church services. And one of the big areas of risk is singing. And for so many congregations, that's as important to them as anything on a service is singing together. And that is a risk. All right, Stephen, I appreciate it very much. Thanks so much. Uh, We wish uh, you and your congregation all the best. 866-893-KPECC or the Airtalk page, kpecc.org. I'm looking forward to hearing your accounts of what you found as you traveled around Southern California. Michael, Robert, Sue, Aaron, others, please stay on the line. I'll get to just as many of you as I can in one minute. Listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KBCC, standing by, ready to join us in just a few minutes, our political analysts. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about the presidential race. One party has chosen its nominee, and we'll find out who that is in case you haven't heard in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, Johnny writes on the Air Talk Facebook page I had to make a delivery to my in laws in Bakersfield this weekend. It was as if there was no pandemic. Store clerks with no masks, no Nobody social distance, groups of guys hanging out around restaurant, outdoor barbecues. I quickly made my drop off and left. Very much a strange feeling. That's Johnny writing on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Sue, in Sherman Oaks, you're going to take us back to Van Nuys Boulevard? Yes, I am. It's where I live. Yeah. So, of course, cruising, a historic part of Van Nuys. What was Saturday night like? Well, it was the second Saturday night where um, they brought their cars, as apparently is historically what they do. um, And they draw a crowd of about 3,000 people, which means we can't go or come um, because we're locked in. Um, They weren't wearing masks. Um, They... Litter, um, noise, it was unbelievable. Helicopters from the police department for two, two and a half hours both nights trying to disperse the people. Wow. Uh, So two different nights, and I'm assuming social media is what's, you know, getting people to come out and to do this. Um, You think with all the racing you see just regularly on the freeway these days that um, wouldn't necessarily be doing it on surface streets. So that's unfortunate. So I I would guess you and your neighbors deeply concerned about this. Deeply concerned. 
All right. Sue, thank you for sharing at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Uh, Robert in Irvine, where did you go over the weekend? Well, Larry, I was driving home from Palm Springs to Irvine and uh, Palm Springs, all the restaurants were open. People were eating al fresco on the patios near packed. And when I was driving home to Irvine, I thought I'd stop by Newport Beach because it's just a couple miles away. And that place was crazy. I mean, it was so packed. Every street corner had probably 50 people on it. I saw just a couple masks. It was nuts. It was actually, it was like Memorial Day. It was on a Sunday, but it was as if there was no quarantine, no social distancing. It was just absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's it's just as though people are are there's all this pent up energy and it's just um, they they're acting as though we're back where we were before the pandemic. Um, so, Robert, you stayed in your car when you went through Newport. Yeah, we just wanted to drive through and check it out, and we actually couldn't even get to the pier. There was so much traffic; it was just so it was unbelievably crowded. So we stayed in our car. We tried to make a U turn. It took a quite a while to get to the light because it was just so crowded on PCH. Yeah. Took off and came home. It was just nuts. Wow. Now in Palm Springs with the alfresco dining, were people keeping a safe distance? Well, they they had people at tables. So of course those groups were together and they did have some tables closed off. So they were trying to make an effort at least. You know, mm-hmm. you could tell that, that, that they weren't on top of each other. Like in Newport, it was, it was, um, it was insane in Newport. But, uh, yeah, they made an effort in Palm Springs. All right. Robert in Irvine, thanks very much, giving us a sense of what you saw in Palm Springs and Newport Beach. Aaron, also in Irvine, where did you go this past weekend? Me and my family went to Peters Canyon, which is a hiking and walking trail. And I hate to be the same pattern follower here, but it was a bit of the same. A lot of people walking without masks. Um, walking their dogs, walking with children. I'd say about, I counted about 20 people out of maybe 70 were wearing masks. So you can do the ratio on that. But it was a little disconcerting because we're not very far from each other. So you really had to make a a special, you know, make sure that you, you space yourself accordingly to keep apart from each other with all the people without masks. Yeah. Um, Aaron, yeah. Now, where was Peters Canyon? I'm not familiar with its location. Yeah, it's, um, I would say it's close to the very, let's see, it runs parallel to Jamboree, which is the main thoroughfare here. And it's it's pretty, as far as I know, I, I'm guessing we're, we're pretty north um, of Irvine, north, north part of Irvine. Okay. All right, in those foothills there. All right, Aaron, thank you very much. Appreciate it. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. And, of course, time is going to tell if people going out and uh, mixing without face coverings or, uh, you know, without keeping a distance, whether this is going to fuel an increase in cases or not. And I guess this is the um, the big real-world experiment that we are engaged in. RTB writes, I just returned from five days in Nevada, most in the isolated desert area near Utah. Few people I saw certainly didn't wear masks. I found in Nevada, most people don't wear them. 
Um, I, I believe most food preparers do, but not all convenience stores or gas station employees did. Even in Barstow, most of the customers in the truck stops didn't wear masks. I drove down the Vegas Strip, see very few people walking, uh, even people riding their bicycles in the street, down the strip and on the sidewalk, something I've never seen before. Yeah, in fact, Wayne Newton rode his bicycle down the strip, I think it was last weekend, um, and uh, posed for pictures with people and all. You talk about a weird Vegas moment, Wayne Newton riding his bicycle down the Las Vegas Strip. I was reading in the the RJ, the Vegas paper, uh, about that. Um, Veronica writes on the page, went to Eaton Canyon Friday. It was awful. Too many people, not enough masks. Happy that it was closed down. Uh, You can share your comments on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Michael in Long Beach, what did you see over the weekend? Yeah, I was biking around down near um, uh, the Long, you know, kind of near, I don't know, Belmont Memorial Pier and kind of east. And, you know, the big problem is the trails. Um, the bike trail and the walking trail, just way too many people congregating together, some wearing masks, but most of them not, you know, people lingering in areas where people should be able to just kind of quickly pass through. You know, there were some people kind of swimming in the, in the water. Some people were kind of posted up with, you know, a cooler, which I don't know if I have such a big problem with because, you know, even at, at, at the height of the summer, Long Beach is never that crowded, the beach, for, yeah. for various reasons, obviously. Well, it's hard to get parking. That's one of the big reasons. There's not much of it. Yeah. There. Yeah. There's no surf anymore. Nobody can hang 10. Um, but there's also, you know, there's huge swaths of beach that are unused even at the height of the summer. So, you know, if people want to hunker down with their immediate family, that's fine. It's just, you know, you see all these people and I'm riding by and I'm like, there's no way you all live together. You're you're kidding me. Plus, you're getting yeah. in my way and I can't, you know, easily avoid you on a bike because I'm usually like a ninja trying to avoid people. <laughs> Michael, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, very good point that you raised. Mia in Pasadena said, I had a very different experience. I live in San Pedro and I thought there'd be lots of people at the beach and parks, but mostly people with masks, people being very respectful. That was Mia's experience. In Richmond and Palm Springs says the restaurants in my area weren't packed at all. The businesses here have been doing a good job at enforcing social distancing rules. A lot of restaurants have opened outdoor distance seating and continue to do takeout. Overall, it was a very quiet weekend here in Palm Springs. That's Richmond in Palm Springs sharing his observations with us. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. It's time for our weekly look at the latest in politics. Typically, we bring it to you every Monday, but because of the Memorial Day holiday yesterday, today is our day for politics. We have much to talk about. And joining us this week, our analysts are Hoover Institution at Stanford University Research Fellow Lonnie Chen. Lonnie was advisor for Marco Rubio's 2016 campaign and policy director for the Romney 2012 presidential campaign. Also with us, professor of political science and co-director of the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies, Eric Schickler. Gentlemen, very good to have you both with us. I want to start first with uh, the lawsuit that's been filed by three Republican groups over California's vote-by-mail order from Governor Newsom requiring that all California voters be sent a vote-by-mail ballot in advance of the November 
November general election. Uh, Lonnie, um, your thoughts about the GOP going after this? Well, I think there's two issues here, Larry. One is the sort of legal question. Uh, and, and the other is is a broader question that I, I'd argue is probably more political in nature. So the legal issue uh, is whether, in fact, the governor could use his executive authority to make this uh, proclamation that every registered Californian would be sent a mail-in ballot, uh, when, in fact, the, the uh, nature of this is usually that the legislature is the one that has control over the time, place, and manner of elections. So... There is this question about whether the governor can do it via his executive authority, and the GOP lawsuit uh, assesses uh, that the governor has overstepped, in essence, his executive authority by so doing. And, and I think that there's reason to believe that that is an argument that the courts will consider seriously. Uh, I do think it's a question uh, that, uh, that, that, that's not just sort of dismissible out of hand. The broader the question, governor, of course, claiming that that he has the right to do it because of the emergency health situation and uh, the potential health risks of a large segment of the populace doing in-person voting. Right. And then, of course, the question is whether, in fact, this is the kind of legislation that was contemplated. In other words, whether the, the, the notion that the governor can change the time, place and manner of an election in this way is contemplated by the emergency power. So that that'll be a legal question that, that I think will 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 you know be interesting to hear about. And then the political issue is sort of how Republicans feel about mail-in mail-in balloting. And you've heard a lot of this dialogue from President Trump on down, suggesting that you know mail-in balloting is uh, is filled with fraud, has serious issues. Uh, California has a pretty robust, one of the most robust mail-in balloting systems in the country. Uh, and in fact, any voter in California can request a mail-in ballot uh, now. And in fact, uh, many voters uh, select the permanent absentee option, which allows them to get a mail-in ballot regardless of the election. So the California Republican Party and the National Republican Party's contention is that the governor basically saying, look, we're going to mail a ballot to every single registered Californian, even Californians who potentially have not voted in several cycles or may have moved, et cetera that creates uh, challenges in terms of the integrity of the election. And, and there, too, I think that the California Republican Party and the Republican Party nationally have a point. So um, it, it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out, but it's impossible to see it separate and apart from the rhetoric that we've heard from President Trump about mail-in voting generally. I think in the primary, Orange County's registrar, um, they mailed ballots, I believe, to every household in Orange County. Some counties already were doing this. Uh, Eric Schickler, UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies, your thoughts about the legal claims of the lawsuit? Well, I I think the legal claims, as Lonnie points out, you know, do hinge on this question of executive power. And uh, I I think that there is a possibility that that a judge would see merit in that, though I, I do think that uh, the emergency situation and the public health situation, at least so far, is you know there's been an inclination to construe the power of the executive more broadly uh, when there is a strong public health justification. So I think, uh, um, while I think there may be some possibility of success on the legal side, I think that um, there's also you know the governor will be able to make a pretty strong public health argument against it. Which party does it benefit? Because here in California, it's been Republicans, I believe, who have been far more represented in vote by mail than Democrats. Eric? So 
when political scientists have studied vote by mail across a number of states, they've actually found no systematic partisan impact. In other words, it doesn't tend on, on balance to benefit Republicans or Democrats. It, it raises turnout a little bit, but it turns out that, that a fair number of those voters are Republicans who, who turn out due to vote by mail and, and a fair number of Democrats. All right. Uh, Lonnie Chen, your, your thoughts about who it benefits? Well, I, I, you know, I think it's uh, it's a subject up for debate. You know, there's certainly uh, examples of situations where Republicans have benefited and examples of where Democrats have benefited. I, I do think it is a question that that deserves future sort of analysis, which is how uh, much fraud is there really in the mail-in balloting system, right? So some states uh, have made the move to all-mail elections uh, Oregon is one of them, for example. Washington State is another. Uh, and those states have had those systems for a while. So I think there's enough evidence there to take a serious look. Now, the anecdotal evidence occasionally is not great. Uh, when you see ballots that are, are mailed to an apartment complex, for example, piled up because people have moved, uh, you see people sort of collecting ballots, the process known as ballot harvesting, which has been somewhat controversial here in California and elsewhere. So I, I think there is a question about... The, the, the sanctity, if you will, of the election in an all-male setting. But that's something, again, that I think we should be able to get some more empirical assessment of. Well, it, yeah, and if everybody's going to be voting by mail uh, in places like California, there'll be a lot of data for collection in that. One of the big knocks on doing universal vote by mail in some states is they've not done a good job of keeping their voter rolls clean. And as a result, you've got people registered multiple times. You've got people deceased who are getting ballots that family members could potentially fill out and said all these potential areas where fraud could occur, even if we don't have any concrete evidence beyond the 2018 North Carolina 9th uh, Congressional District race where a Republican consultant engaged in what's called uh, vote harvesting uh, was actually criminally charged in that case. We'll continue our conversation with our political analysts on AirTalk from UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies, political science professor Eric Schickler, and Lonnie Chen of Stanford's Hoover Institution Research Fellow. We'll be back in just one minute. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking politics with our analyst this week, Lonnie Chen of Stanford's Hoover Institution and Eric Schickler of the UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies. We're talking about Governor Newsom's directive that every Californian prior to the November general election uh, who's a registered voter must be mailed a vote-by-mail ballot. They can choose to use that to vote, either sending it in, dropping it off, having someone on their behalf drop it off at a vote center, uh, or uh, if they feel safe to go to a vote center, should they be open in November, they could also vote that way as well. One issue is how this could delay the vote count. If you have, for example, uh, so-called vote harvesters, people bring in large numbers of other people's signed ballots, where all of those signatures have to be cross-checked with the signature on file, and those are turned in on election day, uh, Eric Schickler, it could be weeks before we get certified election results. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think with respect to the presidential race, you know, this is especially worrisome uh, for two reasons. One is, you know, the popular vote outcome on election night might look very different from the ultimate outcome. So it's, you know, quite possible President Trump would be ahead uh, on election night and then fall considerably behind afterwards. And then secondly, it's not a problem in a state like California, but in some of the closely divided uh, swing states, uh, you could have a situation where President Trump is ahead on election night, but then loses once all the votes are counted, as we saw, for example, in the Arizona Senate race uh, in 2018. And that, unfortunately, is going to fuel or at least potentially could fuel charges of vote fraud uh, from the president, uh, even when there is no basis for that accusation. All right. Um, Well, let's talk about the presidential election. President Trump going out, visiting factories, um, has the opportunity of having his high profile magnified during this time of COVID-19. A little more challenging for Democratic presumptive nominee Joe Biden uh, as uh, going out doing events, uh, something uh, that's challenging. He is wearing facial covering as he did yesterday for Memorial Day observances. President Trump didn't at Arlington Cemetery. Uh, But Joe Biden did go on the radio on the syndicated program Charlemagne the God and said this right at the close of the show. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. I would love to see. Take a look at my record, man. I extended the voting racks 25 years. I have a record that is second to none. The NAACP has endorsed me every time I've run. The war, I mean, come on, take a look at the record. So the comment uh, by Joe Biden uh, was heavily criticized. He, a short time later, in a campaign call with U.S. Black Chambers Business Organization, said, I shouldn't have been such a wise guy. I shouldn't have been so cavalier in the term that he used. Now, President Trump, of course, is been able to say all kinds of things, uh, even retweeting over the weekend uh, a conservative uh, pundit's um, vile reference for Hillary Clinton that was retweeted by the president. But Lonnie, it, it seems that's kind of baked in for President Trump, right? People, people know what his personality's like. They know the outrageous things that he tweets and he says. Is Joe Biden vulnerable for missteps like the comedy made in that radio interview or not? You know, I think I think Biden is vulnerable to the extent that it's an embarrassing news cycle or two. And and believe me, this is not going to be the last gaffe we've heard from Joe Biden. If you look back over his his career and his and his history, uh, he's at a he's at a number of doozies. So this is not the first. It won't be the last. I do think there is a certain degree of uh, pricing into the market, if you will, uh, Donald Trump and, and and kind of saying things that that people go, did he really say that? They kind of stop and say, wow, I guess he did. Um, to a certain degree, I think people have gotten used to that. I think they have figured that that is part and parcel of who he is. Um, you know, Joe Biden, even though he's been in the public spotlight for many decades, uh, has not been... Um, examined and scrutinized in the way that a presidential candidate, someone at the top of the ticket, will be over the next several months. So my guess is that as these gaffes kind of come over the next couple of months, they are going to be magnified and you are going to hear more about them. Uh, Whether it has an impact on the final outcome, I'm more skeptical of that. But it certainly is the case that 
these gaffes, because Biden is in the in the public spotlight at the top of the ticket for the first time, I do think are going to be highlighted a little bit more than than otherwise. Eric Schickler, how do you think Democratic voters weigh it? They, you think they look in and say, well, it's still less than Trump or uh, or, you know, that's Joe Biden or or do you think it gives them pause? Well, I think that there's a segment of Democratic voters who were reluctant to support Joe Biden from the start. And so episodes like this, I think, fuel or, or help continue that that sense of doubt. Uh, on the other hand, I think, you know, the vast majority of Democratic voters look at the comparison between Donald Trump and Joe Biden and, and see a pretty substantial difference. And so I think in the end, it's unlikely this is going to affect a lot of voters. Though there is the concern, the lingering concern with Joe Biden is, do you get enough enthusiasm for people to show up at the polls? And so uh, gaffes like this um, can at least potentially you know, undermine that enthusiasm. And so, so they are something to at least be a little bit worried about. All right. We're talking with our political analyst, Eric Schickler, professor at uh, UC Berkeley, where he's co-director of Cal's Institute of Governmental Studies. Lonnie Chen, research fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Uh, Lonnie, President Trump uh, has, uh, in in polling on the job that he's done handling COVID-19, not fared well, but his approval rating just seems to stay pretty much the same even with the criticism about his handling of the pandemic. As you look at where we are right now with COVID-19, what effect do you see it having on the president's chances of being reelected? Um, I, I think his handling of the crisis is going to be a factor in people's minds. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to be the single most compelling factor in people's minds. I, I continue to believe that um, the situation with the economy and more importantly, not just sort of objectively where the economy is, but the economic trend going into the election, uh, I, I tend to think that that is going to be the most important factor for voters who are uh, who are undecided. So if you if you put aside for a moment, the percentage of Americans who've decided that they're definitely going to vote for President Trump and the percentage of Americans who are who decided they definitely they're definitely going to vote for Joe Biden, you know, you are left with a relatively substantial percentage of people. And for those people, you know, I think they're going to be weighing these different factors. So crisis response is one of them. But I, I really continue to believe that that economic condition, that is going to be the thing that for, for many people they'll look at before they go and they make a decision on who they're going to vote for. Bill in the San Gabriel Valley writes on the AirTalk page, the problem that, quote, crazy Uncle Joe is he's held to a higher standard than the current president. If Joe says outrageous statement X, everyone loses their heads. If the president makes the exact same statement, everyone shrugs. The president's managed to make everyone accept a lower standard for himself and the GOP while keeping Democrats to a higher standard. Well, question, though, Bill, is, is it, everyone else, or is it Democrats themselves? Do they have a different standard for deportment that is going to play out in the election? Or are Democrats just going to look at it, Trump versus Biden, and say, well, Biden's not Trump, therefore I overlook these other things that maybe maybe bother me? Um, Eric Schickler, do you think that there is a... a um, party difference in how people hear the things, how they weigh the statements that their candidate makes? 
I do think that there's a difference in, uh, that you know we've seen repeatedly with President Trump that he can make as the as the uh, listener wrote in you know outrageous statements and his supporters simply shrug their shoulders. Whereas we see prominent Democrats when Joe Biden says something that is a gaffe that is problematic, you see prominent Democrats you know critical of him. And I, I do think that speaks to a broader difference in the in the parties. The Democrats are trying to represent a very diverse set of groups uh, and interests and identities. And and, you know, I think that there's an expectation that a party leader is going to be able to speak both effectively for and to all of those different groups. And that requires uh, some care in your language, some care in 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 how you talk about how you think about issues. And, and so I do think in the end, that does result in a somewhat higher standard. On the other hand, I think it's important for Democrats as a whole to, to keep their eye on the ball and really think about, you know, the substantive stakes in this election, the difference, you know, whatever is shortcomings, the difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in terms of how they would respond to the major problems facing the country is just so vast that I think in the end, for most Democrats, um, they will express the concerns about, about Biden, but that wins the day, exactly. We're talking with Eric Schickler, UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies, a co-director and professor at Cal of Political Science, Lonnie Chen, Hoover Institution at Stanford, just across the bay from Eric Schickler. He's a research fellow at Hoover. We'll continue and we'll tell you who the first formal nominee for the president is. Yes, one of the American parties has made its choice. We'll find out in just one minute. Four years ago, the Libertarian Party chose two former governors to make up its ticket. Former New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson was the presidential candidate. Former Massachusetts Governor Bill Weld, the vice presidential candidate. This time around, in their weekend convention, the Libertarians chose someone who has never held public office, Joe Jorgensen, who teaches at Clemson University and has uh, a doctorate in psychology. Lonnie Chen, your thoughts about whether the Libertarian Party can uh, match or surpass what it did four years ago when it had its best ever showing? Um, look, I think it's unlikely that they'll be a factor, uh, you know, or, or even close to a factor in the way that they may have been four years ago. Um, you know, I, I think it's tough for third parties, uh, independent parties, or, or not one of the two major parties um, to, to have a huge impact. Now, I suppose it depends on your theory of the case about whether they might have particular currency in some states, let's say, for example, where we know things are going to be close. So, if the Libertarian Party makes a big push in, let's say, Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania, states with a president, uh, one with very narrow margins that were dispositive in terms of his ability to win the Electoral College, then you could see the Libertarian Party or some other party having an impact, even if their numbers aren't huge. But, but part of, I think, the appeal for the Libertarian Party four years ago was that they had relatively well-known entities, uh, even if those entities weren't always associated with the Libertarian Party. They were relatively well-known entities that Americans could look at and say, OK, well, they, they seem like reasonable choices, even if, um, you know, e even if they haven't always been libertarians. But the, the, the current nominee of the party, I just don't think is, is somebody who a lot of people have heard of. And I think that may be an issue. 
Yeah, she's been very active, apparently, in the party for years, but not known outside it. Uh, Justin uh, Amash, uh, the congress member from Michigan, uh, had announced he was seeking the Libertarian nomination, but then about a week ago withdrew from that race. Um, any thoughts, Eric Schickler, about Libertarian Party and and its ability to compete, along with other parties like the Greens or or Peace and Freedom? Well, I think that uh, Amash's decision not to run uh, probably limited the libertarians' likely impact in this race. Uh, I, th- I think that this is, again, this is a year in which uh, the two candidates are going to loom pretty large. I think as in particular, uh, you know, it, Donald Trump has such a strong reputation, his core supporters and core opponents. And I think there's probably just not a whole lot of space in this cycle for a third party to make a big difference. Back to Joe Biden and his challenge in um, getting supporters of Bernie Sanders to come aboard and to be motivated enough to come out to vote. Uh, Eric, what are your thoughts about whether he's making progress in that area? Well, I think that, you know, he's starting to make progress. I think one of the important moves that he's made is in terms of the platform. He's put, you know, prominent Sanders supporters in an important role in, in planning out the party's platform. And so I think it's quite likely he'll be running on on a much more liberal platform than any recent uh, Democratic nominee. Uh, so I think he's making progress there. I think a lot of people are going to be looking toward the vice presidential selection as to whether that also is a signal to Sanders supporters. Uh, so I think there's still an opportunity there for Joe Biden to consolidate the party. And, and I think that's what he's been been working towards. And Lonnie Chen, is, is there an argument to be made that if he is going to ideologically tack to the left to try and get Sanders supporters, that maybe he needs to be more cautious, more centrist with his VP pick? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's one argument. Um, It's not clear to me. Let's put it this way. I think in a normal electoral context, it's hard to see the VP pick, in my mind, being a huge differentiating factor. In this election, things might be a little different, though, because uh, there's a perception that – you know, Biden uh, is is of is of an advanced age, let's just say. And so that might make the vice presidential selection all that more important. People might look to that person being a heartbeat away from the presidency as someone who needs to take over. So arguably, um, he, he would be better off selecting someone who's broadly acceptable than someone who sort of makes the Democratic base's hearts go a flutter. Uh, that the competency question, the ability to be someone who governs for all of America, I think those may be more important factors in this election than they would be in an ordinary contest. Yeah, Eric, what what do you think? I mean, we hear, for example, Stacey Abrams of Georgia talked about a lot um, with more limited political resume. Biden already runs strong among African-Americans, but she would excite people if he chooses her. Your thoughts on the significance of the pick? Yeah, no, I think that uh, there are a number of possibilities that have different strengths. I think, you know, Stacey Abrams, in terms of a future-oriented pick for the party, uh, who would excite, I think, a lot of progressives as well, would be, you know, has real potential. Um, So we'll just have to see. All right. I want to thank you both so much. Good to have you with us. That's Eric Schickler, 
UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies, which he co-directs, and he's professor of political science at Cal, and Lonnie Chen, Hoover Institution at Stanford, research fellow, advisor to the Rubio 2016 campaign and the Romney 2012 campaign. He was policy director. Thanks so much. Stay tuned. Governor Gavin Newsom comes up next with his news conference. Uh, Before that, you'll hear the description of what's coming your way on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. And should the governor end before one o'clock, we will join Fresh Air in progress. Uh, That's here on 89.3. Again, Gavin Newsom coming up in just about two minutes right here on KPCC. Have a terrific afternoon. I'm back with you tomorrow morning at 10.